had a wonderful morning. And you're hoping that I'll say this is the end. How we celebrate Father's Day. My name is Wes, I'm one of the pastors here at South Wyoming. And we've recognized our grads, and congratulations again. It's Father's Day, so we celebrate fathers. But we're also going to hear a message, a word from the Lord. And it's my responsibility to kind of weave all these strands together that may feel a little frayed on the edges, but bear with me. This is our last Sunday in the Gospel of John. Next Sunday, we're going to be taking a look at our, Dave's going to kick off our summer series, which is A Good Harvest, looking at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And we will get back to the Gospel of John, which our theme is God Among Us, but it'll be next year, 2019. So be prepared for that. In April, this past April, David Copperfield, the famous illusionist, magician, found himself in court being accused of alleged negligence. The trick he did was bringing 12 or 13 volunteers onto stage, and then in front of everyone's eyes, having this group of 13 disappear. He made a crowd of people disappear. One of those 13 got hurt in the performance of that magic trick. And, and what brought this to light and why the story was in the paper was the judge was making David Copperfield reveal how he did his magic trick, how he made a crowd of people disappear. Our story this morning in John chapter 6 involves a disappearing act. You probably didn't even notice it. We'll come back to that in a moment. John chapter 6 is a very long chapter, 71 verses, and we've spent two Sundays in this chapter already, and this will be our last Sunday in, in the chapter. We discovered early on that it's one story, one story with four parts, four episodes. I took a look at the first two episodes back in the middle of May. The first episode is Jesus feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. The second episode has Jesus walking on the water in the midst of a storm. The third episode, Dave preached on two weeks ago, and this was Jesus' discourse, his sermon on what the feeding of the 5,000 meant. And now this morning, we are looking at the fourth and final episode, the climax, the conclusion to the story. At the center of this fourth episode is a dramatic turn. All through the story, we've been told that a crowd, in fact, a huge crowd, verse 2 and verse 5, was following Jesus. And at one point, they counted 5,000 men. They had, didn't even include the women and children. The huge crowd became just a crowd, in verse 24, after returning from the far side, from the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this crowd then was reduced, shrank down to many disciples. We've gone from huge crowd to crowd to many disciples. And now, in a dramatic turn in verse 66, the many disciples become 12. 12 guys. But even these 12 will be shrunk down to 11. 
This disappearing act was epic, has epic written all over it. David Copperfield would be envious. Initially, I wanted to title my message, Disappearing Crowds, Deserting Disciples, a story of unmet expectations. Besides being way too long, it's negative. When someone writes a story, they want us to identify with the protagonist, the, the main character, the, the hero or heroine, the one that, that endures, the one that keeps moving, prevails, the one that winds up being there at the end. And this is our story today. It's not about the disappearing crowds or the deserting disciples. It's about the ones who endure to the end. And that's our title, Enduring Disciples. Grads, everything lies before you. You anticipate good things ahead. At least that's what you said. You, you have a vision, a picture for the future, and, and you're looking forward, and your hope is that it's going to be a good future. And the best way to ensure a good future is to become an enduring disciple of Jesus. It's the only foundation on which to build our lives. Fathers, we have that same desire. We want to finish well. We want at the end to have our child or children surround us and say, well done, Dad. Well done. You endured. You followed Jesus to the end. One of the biggest hurdles of enduring to the end of the disciple of Jesus is expectations. For high school students, there's this expectation that university is going to be way better than high school. Like, it might be a little bit harder, but way more fun. And sometimes that derails the person because when you get there, the expectations aren't met. It takes work, discipline, determination to graduate. There's roadblocks, hurdles, bumps in the road. You have to keep your goal in mind. Some of you plan to enter the workforce just to get out there and start working because you want freedom, independence. The work world is more about responsibility than independence. And I would just suggest figure out a way to stay at home as long as possible. <laughs> Talk to Christoph. <laughs> Our earlier sermons, John chapter 6, noted that John is telling the story within a context, and the context is the Passover feast. That's the setting for the story. And the Passover feast remembers Israel's exodus, their deliverance from Egypt. The Old Testament exodus story is stamped all over this chapter. John wants us to take a broad view of the Passover feast and what it celebrates. First, it signals the exodus. Two important parts of Israel's exodus was provision of bread in the wilderness. And so we saw this, Jesus replicating this on the far side by giving bread to the 5,000. The second key memory was the actual deliverance through the sea. The children of Israel had the Egyptian army in front of them and they didn't know where to go and God delivers them through the sea. And in our story, Jesus walking on the water, rescuing the disciples from the storm, replicates that deliverance. 
Another memory from the Exodus Passover story was how much grumbling and complaining happened. The children of Israel were grumblers and complainers. When they didn't get bread, they complained. When they didn't get meat, they complained. When they were thirsty, they complained. When the enemy looked unbeatable, they complained. The fourth and final episode of our story begins with complaining. Verse 61. Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining. <coughs> Grumbling and complaining is a recipe for disaster. I came across this meme on complaining. I came, I saw, I complained. I like this next side a little bit better. Complaining is not conversation. Complaining is not a spiritual gift. Complaining not is not a fruit of the Spirit. Israel had a poor track record regarding grumbling and complaining. And whenever they complained, they took their eyes off of God. Complaining focuses on the problem. The many disciples in the story were losing sight of Jesus and focusing on the problem. They weren't understanding him. They were being confused. That was the problem. They had expectations, and Jesus was not meeting those expectations. He was confusing them. They don't understand what Jesus has just said. And so if we go back to his discourse, his sermon, in verse 53, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. Now, that's confusing to me. And if you were a Hebrew, you knew that you were forbidden from drinking blood from animals or anything else. And cannibalism was forbidden. So Jesus, you're telling us to do what? Eat your flesh and drink your blood? That's so offensive. And this language continued to be offensive to the Romans and to the Greeks when the Christians talked about their communion service, the Lord's Supper. Metaphors and figures of speech are word pictures that help us understand deeper meanings, deeper truths. When we use the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, we don't have babies flying all over the place. That's not what's happening. We're just saying, don't throw out the good with the bad. Or we say, don't cut off your nose to spite your face. Nobody's cutting their noses off. But we're saying, sometimes... When you try to get back at somebody, you do more harm to yourself than the person you're trying to get back at. Or when I say, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. Horses aren't getting frightened. That's not the attempt. We're just hungry. Jesus uses word, pictures, metaphors to help us understand deeper truths. And Jesus is using a word picture here to help his followers understand the seriousness of what it means to be his disciple. When I hold my little grandson, Micah, I saw Ed Zader, his other grandpa, getting to hold him already this morning. I, I get him to snuggle up into my neck and I wrestle him and I whisper, I'm going to eat you up. I'm going to eat you up. Now, his eyes don't get wide and he gets frightened. No. I simply want all of him. I love him so much. I just want every little bit of him. 
And that's what Jesus is saying. If you're my disciple, I, I want you to want every little bit of me. I want you to eat me up. Jesus hints that if we're having a hard time with this particular teaching, that we're going to be really offended by what's coming. Verse 61 says, Does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? In the Gospel of John, being lifted up with Jesus ascending is a reference to his crucifixion. And as one writer said, Jesus returns to his Father via the cross. Jesus returns to his Father via the cross. Jesus lifted up to heaven on the cross was highly offensive, pure foolishness. The offense was the curse that it was associated with, with that being hung on the cross. And we only need to go back into the ancient law recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, and it states, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Being hung, being crucified, was a major offense. Why did the crowns disappear? Why did the disciples desert Jesus? Expectations. Unfulfilled, unmet expectations. It doesn't surprise us that these people were looking for a Messiah. Their Messiah. God's anointed one. That's what Messiah means. God anointed in the Old Testament and Hebrew scriptures, we discover many, many stories of leaders within Israel, whether they're kings or priests, being anointed, being anointed with oil and being set apart for their work. But a future God-anointed leader would be raised up and come along and bring deliverance. We forget that there wasn't a unified understanding. There wasn't one picture to describe this Messiah. Two schools of thought had emerged at the time of Jesus. The first school identified the Messiah as king, a political ruler. This Messiah would rule with strength. He would put together troops, loyal troops that would fight for him and deliver them from whoever was occupying their land. And Rome happened to be the occupiers, and so this Messiah would deliver them from Rome. The kingly picture of the Messiah dominates our thinking. David was king, the Messiah would rule on David's throne. What other possibility could there be? But not everyone wanted to trade one dictator for another. They were tired of being taxed to death. So the second school thought, the second school's vision of Messiah was much different. They saw the anointed one as a priestly Messiah. The Messiah would come and make right would make righteous the worship practices of Israel. Corruption had taken over the temple and its worship. And there's those who believe that the Messiah priest would come and right those wrongs. The top priests were wealthy. They were living in mansions. The zealots of Jesus' day reflected the military model of Messiahship. The zealots were an extremist group. They were looking for a Messiah willing to take on Rome. The Essenes, they represented the priestly Messiah school of thought. They believed that if they could replace the corrupt priesthood, 
with a good priesthood, a righteous priesthood, they could turn the temple around. And as they turned the temple around, God would send his heavenly army of angels, a heavenly army to destroy the enemies of God, ushering in the Messianic age. Now the Essenes left Jerusalem completely, went and lived down in a community beside the Dead Sea. And because of them, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, because hidden away in some of the caves early in the mid-20th century, they found these scrolls that, that give us a good chunk of our Old Testament. Jesus didn't meet any of these expectations. Unfulfilled expectations led to disappointment. Unmet expectations led to disappearing crowds and deserting disciples. Like I said at the beginning, this is not the message. The message is enduring disciples. So how do we get there? How do we become enduring disciples? Grads, you're standing at the front door, looking out at a world that you haven't had any experience with. And some of you have a dream, you have a vision for the future. You have expectations. And the only way that you can meet those expectations is to endure, to keep going, to have someone cheering you on. But you're going to run face, you can come face to face with unmet expectations. And there's a clue in our story here how we can be enduring disciples in the face of unmet expectations. We don't need to be distracted by the disappearing crowds or the deserting disciples, but we need to refocus. We need to place our eyes in a new direction. Let's take a look at the story once more. Verse 66. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. And Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe. We know you are the Holy One of God. Let me read those last two verses again. Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Here we have the answer to enduring disciples. It begins with a staggering commitment and a surprising confession. Lord, to whom would we go? We believe. Jesus, we have nowhere else to turn. You are the one we want to turn to. You're it. We believe in you. This staggering commitment set them on a courageous path of mission and ministry. They did not live boring lives. In fact, most of them died a martyr's death. We live in a time when we commit to nothing. Someone says, are you going to come to my party? And we don't say yes or no because we're going to wait to see if a better party comes along because we don't want to miss out on something that might be a little bit better. Back a couple of weeks ago, I ran into an article in Vancouver Sun. And the title of it was, Canadians Lukewarm About Marriage. And the article presented the results from a poll that was done earlier in the year that said Canadians were no longer committed to the institution of marriage, the majority of Canadians. We're more committed to our sports team, like we're watching that soccer tournament, the World Cup. We're more committed there than to our primary relationships. 
Marriage has become too big a commitment for us to make. Marriage has always been a staggering commitment, not unlike our commitment to Jesus. One of the lines I often use when I'm married a couple is from Mike Mason's book, The Mystery of Marriage. And he writes and says, Furthermore, it should be clear that anyone who enters into marriage actually relinquishes the right to engage in any other adult relationship which might be equally deep or pervasive. One chooses one's mate as one chooses one's God, forsaking all others until death. That's commitment. Choosing one's mate is one chooses one's God, forsaking all others until death. Marriage is a staggering commitment, but it's fashioned after our commitment to God. Let me highlight the staggering commitment to faith. One chooses one's God by forsaking all others until death. Randy Friesen, the director of our MB mission, he sends out a, a weekly or a monthly update, and he tells a story in these updates, and I've used a number of the stories, but his story in this past June's update was all about staggering commitment. It's a story of one person choosing Jesus and forsaking all other gods, even in the face of death. Randy was meeting with a group of pastors from the Midwest, and was introduced to Claude Tomba Tomba, a Congolese refugee and a church planter living in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Claude was from eastern Congo, where his whole family had been killed in tribal conflicts, and he himself had been tortured for many weeks. God spared his life and called him to be his ambassador to the nations. Stripped naked, chained, and beaten, Claude was denied food and water for 33 days. Filled with the Spirit, he told his captors that he would not die, but they would testify to God's call on his life. He was the only prisoner that survived. He then became a refugee in Kenya and Uganda. God planted three churches. He knew who he was, who had called him. And when he was accepted as a refugee to come to the United States, he found a job along with other many other immigrants in a meatpacking plant. And one day in the plant, he recognized one of the men, one of the men that had tortured him in the Congo. And he approached the man with a smile. He shared the love of Christ with him. And that man's fear just disappeared. And he was amazed when he heard Claude's testimony. They're now friends. This is a story of staggering commitment. It's a story of staggering commitment to Jesus Christ. You don't know this kind of commitment unless you know the person to whom you're committing yourself. This is not a mere mental assent. I believe stuff about you, Jesus. This is a heart, soul, mind, body commitment. I'm all in, Jesus. You have my loyalty my full allegiance. This is a staggering commitment in line with Joshua's, where he commits him and his family in front of all of Israel as they've entered the promised land and he's winding up his time in the, as leader. He gathers the children of Israel today and he says, choose today who you will serve. 
And then he goes on, he says, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Or Ruth, her staggering commitment. Here she returns with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to a land she, she was a foreigner in. And she tells Naomi, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. A staggering commitment. Or Daniel's staggering commitment to continue to pray to God three times a day, knowing that this could cause his death. The disciples' staggering commitment came out of a surprising confession. Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. We know you are the Holy One of God. Recognizing God in human form, in the flesh, in Jesus, is the beginning. An enduring disciple begins by confessing Jesus as the Holy One of God. We can say this in so many other ways. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Jesus is Christ. He's, he's Messiah. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Enduring disciples confess Jesus, the Holy One of God, God's Messiah, God's King. A surprising confession. It can't be made up. It can only happen if the Holy Spirit enters us and opens our eyes to see Jesus as who He is. We can't confess without aligning our hopes, our dreams, our loyalty and our allegiance upon Him. This is what it means to say, I believe. The enduring disciple of John 6 has gone to the far side and returned, tasted bread from heaven, surfed a storm, and found deliverance, listened to a message that created more confusion than clarity, watched crowds disappear and disciples desert. And in the end, the enduring disciple was able to make a staggering commitment and a surprising confession. To whom would I go? I give you my allegiance, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. God among us. It's not only grads who are stepping into a brave new world tomorrow morning. Each Monday morning we wake up and step into a brave new world and test our loyalty, our love, our allegiance to Jesus. Enduring disciples keep coming, coming back to that staggering commitment and that surprising confession. To whom would I go? I give you my allegiance, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God, God among us. I want to invite the worship team to come up at this time. I want to challenge us. I want to challenge you to make this commitment, this confession. It will shape your journey. It will reshape you, and it won't be easy. It is never easy, but it is good. To whom would I go? I give you my allegiance, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. God among us.